Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's one thing falling in love with a house, picturing yourself moving in and calling it home, and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating, mortgage lenders, and finding the budget that works best for you. An agent who's a Realtor can make understanding that world easier. Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Well, I've had an interesting life. I've done so many different kinds of things. I have a tons and tons of credits, and I was going to mention to you that if, if I were a star instead of a character actor, you know, I could make a movie in eight weeks, and maybe later I'd make another movie in eight weeks, but while someone else is making a real movie with lots of scenes because they have a leading role, I'm playing a one-day part or a two-day part, so I can do that all year long and be in six or eight movies. So I have tons of credits. That's Paul Dooley. We go back a long way to when we were both just starting out and collaborating on writing his stand-up comedy act in a cheap spaghetti restaurant. We didn't know then where our lives would lead us, that we would one day have a reunion decades later on a podcast, or that he would become a character actor famous for playing people's dads. The autobiography he's written, due to be published later this year, is what brought us together again. You know, Paul, I love your book, Movie Dad. And it's remarkable to me that you played somebody's dad in so many movies. Did you ever count up how many movies you played a dad in? There are at least 25 of those actors. In one of the chapters, it's called All My Children. (laughs) And mostly they were, were actresses, but I did play... Philip Seymour Hoffman's father once when he was 16. He was a school bully, and I was a kind of a bully, too. I was a guy who walked around with a shotgun with a hunting gear on. Why do you suppose, how did and, you get into this this line of work of playing dads? How, did, how does something like that happen? Well, it's it probably largely happened because of the success of 16 Candles, uh. which is a beloved movie by young women who saw it when they were young and now they're 35 or 40, but it's just something that stuck with them, this understanding kind of dad. And so because of that movie, other people began to picture me the same way. It's really typecasting. If you do a movie and it, it, it lands, you know, they think that's, uh, that's the guy to go to for the next kind of dad. But of course, I did the other dad in Breaking Away, which was a pretty popular movie. I loved that movie, and I loved your scenes in it. You you were so, so heartfelt. But as much heart as the movie had, still to this day, my wife Arlene and I still quote 
lines from the movie that are not not so heartfelt, but just to me hilariously funny when you say you hate all the eeny words. Yeah, and I don't want any eeny in this house. <laughs> Fettuccine, linguine. Yeah, <laughs> any eeny in this house. Because your child in the movie was obsessed with things Italian. Being Italian. And represented the, the breaking away element in the movie. That was the secret of the movie. I, mean, I, know, I know I did a, a good job. And even Roger Ebert said it was the heart of the movie, and you were just saying something about that. But as you know, as an actor, when you have a mediocre script, you're not going to be that great. And if you have a great script, you can be great. I've been in terrible scripts and sneaked my way through you know, yeah. tried to do what I could with it. I was surprised when I was acting in plays on the stage that I'd read the script, I'd be lucky enough to get the job, and I'd take any job I was lucky enough to get. But I couldn't understand why the people putting the show on didn't realize that it was probably going to close within two days. Because <laughs> you could tell by reading the script. When I met you, weren't you doing Pearly? I, Pearly? I, I could, it could be. I can't remember when we met. We did some workshops with David Shepard, the new one up to Cape Cod, I believe. Yeah, we did an improvisational show at the hotel where President Kennedy in the morning would give his press conferences. And, and at night in the basement in the cabaret, I would play him doing a press conference with the audience. Wow. Made up of reporters who had been there in the morning asking me the same questions they had asked him. <laughs> But it hadn't, been, That's in the, a great idea. hadn't been in the paper yet, so I didn't know what they were talking about sometimes. When I joined Second City, it was the New York company. Yeah. They all come to New York. And I went in an odd way as an understudy so they could take vacations. And after I understudied them got all for two weeks each, I'd been eight weeks with the company doing the set material, the frozen part of the show. Yeah. Then the management of the uh, nightclub said, well, you know everything now, you might as well join the company. But I really went there to be an understudy, and I finally had to learn improvising from then on, Did you just by being pushed on stage. Did you ever do Viola Spolin's version of improvising? There was a lot of Viola. Yeah. A lot of those exercises, those games. We had a, uh, one of her games called Animals, where we all played animals, and then it became... The side coach said, now they're going to become humans, but retain the personality of the animals. Oh, that's great. I never did to, that. That's a good idea. There's another scene that's wonderful that we used to do. was called Fast Slow. We'd improvise a scene for maybe two minutes. Then we'd do it for them uh, slow, almost like slow-mo. Then we'd do it for them again, very fast. And it was funny because it was fast, trying to remember the basic idea of it. Then we went back to the original and did it. Now what we learned in that fast and the slow is incorporated into the, the final version of the original scene. And it changed and, as and a result? It changed as a result because things that didn't get laughs before would now get laughs. You know, it's interesting. I've worked with actors as a coach teacher on written material where improvising was so important to the outcome. It's a little bit like what you just said. They read the scene as it's written in the script. But then I said, let's go back to what happened before this scene took place that made this scene take place, a wrenching experience where he's deserting her even though she's pregnant. It, it was so real to them. They had been through such a real experience that when they went back 
to the written scene. All that was underneath it. It informs it. Yeah. You know what happened to me in a play I was doing that Arkin directed with all these Second City actors called The White House Murder Case by Jules Pfeiffer? Yeah. Here's what Alan would do. He was a wonderful director because he had a, a particular laugh that he barked when he laughed. One day he said to us, now that you're off book, let's do it with the lines, Jules' lines, but as if it's a soap opera. <laughs> so we'd had a, a whole run-through giving it a sketch version of it, but not changing any words. Another day he said, let's do it as a Western in a bar. And it was all very political. But those improvs informed our eventual way we did this show. It's really amazing. So it's a terrific idea. Yeah, yeah. The, in that way, improvisation has had a real effect on American theater, American acting. Absolutely. A lot of actors think, oh, I can't improvise, but if you get them to start doing it, they can do it. Yeah, you know, you you know, know we, teach, is... we teach improvisation exercises to scientists and doctors and nurses as the first step in getting them to be able to connect with the people they're communicating with. And then yeah. they tailor their message based on that connection that they establish. But I've seen them be so good that in some cases I couldn't imagine an actor being better because when you accept the circumstances and then just bring what's in the back of your head forward under those circumstances, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's indistinguishable from good acting. As you may remember, uh, you looked at my book that I wrote, which will be out in the end of this year. Uh, I talk about that and I say, why actors or anyone should be afraid of improvisation. Children do it every day. They never took a lesson in improvisation, but if you hand them a little cardboard crown, they'll be the princess. And if you give the kid a twig, it'll become a weapon of some kind. They don't need any problems with acting. They act all the time. It's pretend. Acting is pretending, and so is improvisation. I used to do that with one of my grandchildren. She'd, she'd get behind the couch and she'd have hats and coats and things like that. And I would, it would be called Alan's Alley. And I'd say, well, I think I'll knock on it. I remember yeah, that. We'd do our own version of Fred Allen's Alan's Alley. And I'd knock on the door and, and say, Here, here's uh, Maud. I wonder if Maud's home. Hello. And she'd get up with a hat on and she'd be Maud. And she'd be the character completely. It was just a wonderful, <laughs> a wonderful thing to share with her. I wrote, as you know from the book, uh, I was the head writer for Electric Company. You taught a whole generation to read doing that. I had them audition with a burlesque, uh, with a vaudeville sketch. And you know a little bit about burlesque, I found out. I think when we first met, I didn't know for sure that you had, that your father had done that. He was in burlesque when I was born. And starting from about the age of three or so, I was standing in the wings watching burlesque. Well, that stuff got into your head. Yeah, I watched some of the greatest comics alive at the time, and they took me on stage as a joke. Every child was brought on stage as a joke. Mickey Rooney, Buster Keaton, all of them. 
they wrote on stage at three years old. Yeah, well, that, it's, it's, yeah. it's a good beginning because I thought the world was made up of people in show business and people who weren't the civilians on the, on the outside. They were such unfortunate people. They didn't laugh all the time. I didn't get to see as much burlesque as you did. But here's the best sketch I ever saw in burlesque, and you may even know what it is. The nurse gets on the phone. She says, uh, Mr. Hagen is here. Yes, send him right in. Ask him if you brought his specimen. And he comes, the comic, carrying a big water jug like from Arrowhead, you know, huge <laughs> water jug. Two-thirds full of urine, right? Yeah. So the doctor takes it off with difficulty into the back room, the lab, and he does a couple of jokes with the girl, and he comes back, and he said, uh, well, I looked at your specimen, and you're okay. The comic says, may I use your phone? He said, sure. He says, hello, Mama, it's Billy. I just gave the doctor my specimen, and he says, I'm okay, and you're okay, and Pop's okay, Uncle Phil's okay, <laughs> Aunt Minnie's okay. <laughs> Never heard that. Cousin Jer Jerry's okay. Oh, and if you see the cop in the corner, tell him his horse is okay. <laughs> Is that a great sketch? I never saw that sketch. Anyway, I grew up, as you did, with many influences. Mine were Buster Keaton, vaudeville. When I was 16, I did a play in which I, I think I had one line. I was an, an apprentice in summer stock. But I would stand in the wings every night and watch the show because Buster Keaton was starring in the play. I don't know how old he was then. He must have been 65 or 70 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, but he, the way it's written, it's for a young man who's 23 years old. Then they just changed it to fit Buster. And what's amazing <laughs> is he could still do the stunts he did when he was himself 23 years old. Of course. He did a backflip where he went in the air and turned completely around and landed in a pratfall. I don't know how he did it without breaking his bones. You know what happened to me, and this is you read about it in the book, uh, when I was 15, I saw Keaton for the first time on an 8-millimeter screen in the guy's house. And I knew I wanted to be an actor, but I knew I couldn't be a silent movie comedian. But my friends and I went out and made silent movies. 30 years later, I meet Keaton, and I do a commercial with him for two days. That was like meeting God for me. Do you remember when we got together to write material? For you? Sure, for The Tonight Show. I'd done it once, they invited me back, but I didn't have any material. Right, I think you had a week to come up with a, a routine and no chance to try it I, out any place. And I asked you to help me. You were in a play on Broadway. We would do it between the Wednesday and Saturday matinee. So we did it at an Italian restaurant. Do you remember the name of it? It was called Professor Mazzoni's Spaghetti Factory. That's right, in the, right there in the theater district. Yeah, and there was a huge machine out of which spaghetti came. And for about <laughs> 80 cents or something, you could get a plate of spaghetti. And I, and I had a piece of paper in front of me with spattering, spatterings of tomato sauce. I don't know how we did it. The premise was an... Underpaid teacher and a falling down school. Right. As you talked, the school kept falling down more. But as I remember, you did most of the writing and I did most of the learning about how to write a, <laughs> a monologue. Well, it took both of us, but you have you have great comedy chops. Look at your background and everything you've done. But uh, I remember a line where the teachers, I played the teacher and I said, uh, Johnny, go upstairs to the library and bring down the dictionary. No, wait. 
the, the library is coming down to us. <laughs> I forget that. The thing that shocked me is after you did the Tonight Show and it went well. Yeah. You called me up and said, I'm giving you half my salary because you wrote it with me. That's right. That was generous and unheard of. And I, I, I want to thank you because... Well, I guess some people would give 10% or 20%. Yeah, but you, want, you wanted to give but, me uh, half. And I, I think I still owe you some money because I didn't really write that much of it. We have so many things in common. You wrote your comedy yeah. routine. I wrote your comedy routine with you. You did improv. <laughs> I did improv. Your wife wrote yeah. the musical comedy Wicked. I saw Wicked. There you go. It ran 16 years on Broadway. Wow. Then stopped, and now it's come back. It's un- unbelievable. She's so, she's so talented. Yeah. Congratulations to her yeah, and she to is. you. She also created a show called My So-Called Life, which is a kind of a cult Oh, I didn't realize that was that, hers. Yeah, yeah, very. It starred Claire Danes. Yeah, very successful. Claire Danes show. auditioned when she was 13. Mm. And she did it when she was 14, and she had the, the poise, the grace, the talent of a 40-year-old actress. She was that great. And so they're still very close friends, Claire Danes. When we come back from our break, Paul Dooley reminds me of one of my favorite stories from his book, Movie Dad. It's the time when he was in the Navy, and his chronic seasickness somehow led him to become a national wartime hero. Hard to believe we've done more than 200 episodes of Clear and Vivid, which is over 200 reasons to support the show on Patreon.com. Here are three more. One, the proceeds from sponsors and donors support the nonprofit Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University, training people around the world to be better communicators. Two, At the highest level of support, you're invited to join the monthly video chat with me and other donors. And three, if you're interested, I'll record your voicemail message. Either a plain vanilla one, Betty can't come to the phone right now, but leave your name and number, you know, like that. Or one with some snark in it. Hi, this is Alan Alda. Betty has no interest in talking on the phone right now. Probably busy listening to my podcast. But leave your name and number, and it's entirely possible you'll get a call back. Just a touch of healthy indifference for your loved ones. Go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Is this house a good price compared to others in the area? Are prices going up or down? If I don't make an offer right this very moment, will I miss my chance? These are just some of the questions a home buyer might ask. And these are the sorts of questions an agent who is a Realtor can help answer. Because Realtors have the expertise, data, and access to specialty training to help you navigate the process of buying a home. They provide support, guidance, and have your back every step of the way. That's what Realtors do, because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Paul Dooley. What was that story that I loved so much in your book about when you were in the Navy and you involuntarily yeah. became, became a hero? What, what, what was all that? 
uh, I was chronically seasick. The minute we left port, I was seasick. And uh, uh, up chucking and all that nonsense, you know. Couldn't keep any food down. But they still make you do your work. And at one point, they I'm throwing up over the side of the ship and all that, and I don't want to work, but they don't believe in not working. If that otherwise, everybody would say I'm seasick, then they wouldn't have to work. <laughs> so they forced me to work not only when I was sick, but sent to the crow's nest, which is the highest point in the ship, moving sideways, back and forth. If you're going to be seasick, that's the last place you go. So I was up there, and I'm watching for enemy ships because we're pretending they're in a war, a mock war. Uh, I called them, uh, I forget what they called it, but it was a mock warfare. And uh, a red a red navy and a blue navy, we were enemies. But I'm up there throwing up in a crow's nest. Then I leave there feeling like terrible, go back to get in my bunk, they wake me up and said, get a pail of warm water and go to the crow's nest and cl clean it out. And then I said, the dagger in my heart of it's bad enough to be sick, now I'm gonna have to clean up. So I started climbing a ladder and I faked falling off the ladder. It was only about four feet. Everybody saw it. There happened to be a lot of people visiting because there were war games, admirals, visiting VIPs. Associated Press, United Press, and everyone's on the bridge watching, and they happen to see me fall. So they decide, they go to the sick bay, and they decide, well, he's got the uh, burst appendix. We're going to have to transfer him to another ship. It's all nonsense because I was only seasick. But I figured, okay, transfer me. I'll pretend to have a burst appendix. They can take out my appendix. I don't care. <laughs> so they sent me one, one ship to another about, I don't know, 75 yards away. And there's a, a cable and like this, you know. And if one ship would zig when the other one zagged, you know, could snap the cable. So I put my life in danger to pull off this hoax. I get there and uh, I give them another story. I pretend I don't have any pains anymore. Nothing happened. I'm okay. They said, well, I think you were misdiagnosed. They sent me back home, and now I was a hero on my ship because I almost died. Not. <laughs> so there were news reports that you had behaved heroically? Well, what happened was, in my hometown paper, and of course all over the country back in the States, uh, my name, my parents' name, uh, he, uh, his life is in danger, you know. And a, the an Associated Press sent this kind of thing to every newspaper that there is, because it was war, it was, uh, people are interested in the wartime stuff. So I had to phone my parents on a ship to shore phone from the aircraft carrier, say, it's okay, it was just a mistake, a false alarm, don't worry about me, I'm okay. What made them want to say that you had a burst appendix? Because they knew you were faking they made, it? They made it up. Why? Well, they were. They had me on a table, and they're saying, does this hurt? Does that hurt? I can't say I'm seasick. <laughs> uh, so some, I was just guessing. I would say, that doesn't hurt. That doesn't hurt. That hurts a little. I didn't know that was my appendix. <laughs> I said, uh, and every time I said, yeah, I think you got the spot. That's where it hurts. So they decided I, was, I had a burst appendix. What the hell did they know? Uh, they didn't have an x-ray machine even or anything like that. Well, <laughs> but I'll tell you, that acting comes in handy sometimes. 
I never played anybody with a fake burst <laughs> appendix. That's you, and you look, you you fooled the doctors themselves. Pretty good. That that's what I call acting. You reminded me when you talked, when you talked about doing the movie Popeye, and for some reason you shot it in Malta. Why did you shoot it in Malta? What was the reason for that? Well, Bob Altman, which really gave me a whole movie career by putting me in five movies in a row. I was a New York actor until then. I didn't make a film until I was 49. Mm. But Altman liked to get away from Hollywood so the producers from the studio, the suits, wouldn't come and look over his shoulder and tell him how to do his movie. So he looked for a place that we could invent called Sweet Haven in the coast of Spain and up on New England and uh, in the coast of Mexico. It had to be on the water. And he finally went to Malta to look at it because they had a water tank and we had certain underwater scenes. He went to look at it, and he liked the place. But one of the reasons he chose it is he went to a pub, a little place for a hamburger. And he's a little superstitious. Uh, and he went to the restroom, and the names on the restroom said Popeye olive oil. Mm. The, the men's room was Popeye, and the women's room was olive oil. And he said, that's it. That's a sign from heaven. But he also he liked it that they had a certain water tank that he could utilize. And you reminded me of movie sets that I've been on where you're far away from home and everybody needs something to oh, yeah. do at the end of the day. And you put together a show for one another because you had all of these people who could perform and improvise. Yeah. Robin Williams. Yeah. You did a four-hour show. That's right. Just for ourselves, our audience. You finished your bit and walked out and got in the audience, you know. <laughs> And it was four hours long. That's how much talent we had. Bill Irwin was there. Uh, McIntyre Dixon, Dick Libertini have routines. I had routines left over from my stand-up days. From Professor Mazzoni's Spaghetti Factory, maybe? I've had an interesting life. I've done so many different kinds of things. I have a, tons and tons of credits, and I was going to mention to you that if, if I were a star instead of a character actor, you know, I could make a movie in eight weeks, and maybe later I'd make another movie in eight weeks. But while someone else is making a real movie with lots of scenes because they have a leading role, I'm playing a one-day part or a two-day part. So I can do that all year long and be in six or eight movies. So I have tons of credits. And the hallmark of a good character actor is the audience knows your face, but they don't really know your name. And they don't know anything about you. I said this in my book in the early part of it. Cab driver said, I know you. I said, oh, who am I? He said, well, I don't know your name, but you have a household face. <laughs> That's because it, I did a ton of commercials before I ever did a movie. Tons of commercials. You may have been doing commercials then, too, back when you were. I was trying to know, do commercials. I did, I did radio commercials where I played three characters at once. <laughs> and somebody said to me, how long have you been doing this? And I, I, I didn't want to say I just started. <laughs> you know what happened to me after I joined Second City? 
Andrew Duncan and I began to start doing radio commercials together because we seemed to have a kind of a style and a kind of a compatibility of feeding each other lines. And at first he just hired us to do written commercials, but we made them so much better by adding, you know, last lines, you know how it is. Uh, pretty soon we became really famous for the radio team. Then we said, how about paying us extra money for creating a lot of funny stuff in your commercial. Then we finally got it to where we said, don't write a commercial. Tell us what the copy points are. Tell us what we need to say. We'll wrap around it with a story with jokes. Then we did that. We made about uh, 400 uh, radio spots. Whoa. Because I kept my little, you remember those books that said Week at a Glance? Yeah. You could put your auditions I kept them all for some crazy reason. And when I, when I had the auditions, I put them in the book. And then when I got a job, I put an X mark by it. That means I, I got the job I auditioned for. And as you know, you may audition 20 times to get one job. So I got all those books in my garage out here. In the pandemic, I didn't know what I was doing. So I got them out and looked at them. And I counted them up. And I had 640 commercials between radio and television. That's amazing. How long did it take you before you were able to give up part-time jobs like clowning? Nine years. That's, that's how long it Nine took me, years. too. You read in my book that I was living on $3,000 a year for nine years. And in those days, it wasn't impossible. Then I did a commercial, my first commercial. They loved me. I, I became their spokesman. I got a contract for $40,000. What a, what a leap, huh? <laughs> I could live for 10 years on the old routine. <laughs> I remember standing in a, one of our first apartments thinking how wonderful it was. And it was, it was just an okay apartment. It cost not even a couple of hundred dollars a month. Yeah. And I remember saying, I hope we always can afford to live here. We're coming to the end of our time together for this this get-together, but we always end every conversation with seven quick questions. Are you game? Sure. What do you wish you really understood? Um, that's a great question. It go goes very deep because I understand a lot of things, but really understand. <clears throat> I would say uh, uh, true love. Huh. I have love with my wife, and I love her. But the more I learn about love, and it grows, as you know, with a partner. Yeah. And the pandemic closes you up together, and you can learn even more. I had a 20th anniversary, and we, we renewed our vows. And I realized that renewing our vows is so much richer than when we got married, when we hardly knew each other, that over time your love grows. I figure one day I'll know everything about love. <laughs> you know, I'll understand it finally. Great. Second question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? <clears throat> well, a lot of people talk to me about the history of show business and comedy. And uh, I have no trouble. I don't use the word wrong. I think you may be mistaken, you know. <laughs> They'll say, uh, Buster Keaton only became famous in silent movies. No, he was famous when he was four, five, six years old. Mm. 
with his father. I tried to not ever say wrong. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? It might be you, but uh, they said, if you had it to do all over again, would you still be an actor? And it was strange because it's like saying, what I did already is not good enough. (laughs) 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 Why do I need... Well, I don't need to pick another profession. But I I started out being a cartoonist, and I still have that interest. Yeah, you know, I didn't know that about you until I read the book. In other words, if you're interested in art, then I turned it into comedy art. Interested in acting, turned it into comedy acting. You know, so everything pointed to comedy, you know. Do you still amuse yourself turning out cartoons? Well, I started making up superheroes. The only ones they had were Superman, Batman, and Captain Marvel. That's when I was a kid. So I started making up my own. And one of the ones I made up was called Spider-Man, because nobody had done it yet. But I thought if there's a Batman, it could be a Spider-Man. So I had his mask made of a web, and his cape was made of a web. And uh, someone said to me, well, you should sue them. (laughs) I said, no, I was like 11 years old. What you mean you, you designed all this and then somebody else came out with it? Just for myself. Huh. It's funny how that happens sometimes. Let me get to the next question. How do you, this is a hard one, how do you stop a compulsive talker? I think I hear my phone ringing. Oh, you. you oh, there, there's the doorbell. These are people who want to <laughs> <laughs> call up and sell me a bill of goods. Are you planning any possibility of putting a new roof on? You get those calls all the time. And after a while, even if it's an old friend who just won't stop talking, I'll say, you know, my wife is pointing to me, dinner's ready. So I become a liar. Sometimes I answer those calls in a foreign accent and ask them impossible to answer questions. They get more frustrated than I am. I sometimes tell them they're asking for my wife and I say, oh, she doesn't live here anymore. What do you mean? Well, we're not together. (laughs) You improvise a whole life for them. Yeah, why not? Next question. Let's say you're at a dinner table. You're sitting next to someone you don't know, you've never met before. How do you start up a genuine conversation? Because I'm in a funny way, a public figure. People have seen my face a lot and seen me in a lot of different mediums. I'm used to that, but I'm always curious when I meet a new person, what is it they do? So since a lot of times they they think talking to me, they might know more about me than I know about them. So I'll say, I'm not interested in you know hearing about what I've done. I know that. I'm more interested in what you do. What's your profession? And what is it you like about your life? Mm. You have family, you have children. What's important to you? Okay, next to last. What gives you confidence? Well, I'm a little unusual because I never um, did much acting without being confident. I had some built-in confidence even when I couldn't get jobs. I thought that I could do it well. I began to get confidence in college and the plays I did because... The professors would take me inside and said, don't tell anybody, you're the best actor in the college. (laughs) But uh, I always had confidence that I could do it. But the the only time I didn't have confidence, I worked up an act and took it on the road, a nightclub act. And if they didn't laugh, 
at the first three jokes, I went, I, I went into a default mode and my mouth dried up and you'd hear my lips snacking. And, <laughs> yeah, you know, I know that. Because all the moisture went out of my mouth. Yeah. And the, I continue with the act and sometimes it worked because the jokes were well written, but w- without any confidence and no heart and not having any fun. This flop sweat, you know. Uh, but I have to say, I've always had confidence in my work. You bring up an interesting point, the connection between confidence and having fun. You have much more liable to have fun if you're confident, wherever you get the confidence yeah. from. Okay, last question. Yeah. What book changed your life? It's by Isabel Wilkerson. It's called Cast. C-A-S-T-E, cast. I don't know this book. What's it about? It's about uh, black and white relationships in this country. And she made a point that there are two kinds of racism in this country, unconscious and conscious. And she says only a small number of people in general are uh, consciously racist. The other 75 or 85 percent are unconscious racist, but not everybody knows it. So she was giving examples. By the time she was finished with this book, it came out about four years ago. Uh, you should read it. You would love it. She, I realized that because I grew up in a certain time, in a certain country, uh, and in a surrounding with the people I knew who were white, I too was an unconscious racist mm. without knowing it. And I had to ask myself, if I'm on a street corner walking on a dark night, I see three black guys. I'm a little afraid sometimes because I, what I used to think was they may be drug dealers or may going to mug me, might cross the street. This is in New York. And, but I had to say to myself, if those were three white guys, would I have done that? So what's going on here? Do I have unconscious racism or fear of a black person? And fear and, and suspic- suspicion of the other is sort of the same thing. The fear can lead to the racism. And uh, I finally decided, to be honest with you, I said, yeah, I'm, I'm an unconscious racist. I'm not doing anything about it. I'm going to cause any harm. But it's floating around in the head. You know that, and this woman who's marvelous, marvelous writer. That honesty you talk about is something that's really evident in your book. It's funny. The stories are sometimes hilarious, but there's real honesty in the book about how you developed, how you wanted to develop as a person, and the progress you've made. Yeah. And, and I congratulate you on it. And I. I hope people take a look at your book and get the same response that I had. What I like is I've got to take a good look at your face, and I haven't seen you for 30 or 40 years. I know. It's been amazing. I've seen you on film. You can see each other aging on film. But it's, it's so lovely to speak with you because I love you so it's much. It's been great, Paul. I love you too, Paul. Yeah. Thanks so much. My pleasure. I loved it. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. 
And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. At 94, Paul Dooley is still making movies and racking up credits, in addition to his 640 commercials. His best-known movies are Sixteen Candles, Popeye, Runaway Bride, and Breaking Away. On television, he's had recurring roles in series such as My So-Called Life, 30-something, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and Chicago Hope. His wife of almost 40 years is Winnie Holtzman, the creator of My So-Called Life and co-creator of the award-winning musical Wicked, which is now playing in theaters around the country. Paul's autobiography is due to be published later this year, and it's called Movie Dad. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with famed primatologist Franz Duval. In his new book, Different, Gender Through the Eyes of a Primatologist, Franz draws on his decades of studying chimpanzees and bonobos to argue that sexual preferences and sex roles are just as fluid in our nearest primate relatives as they are among humans. Some conservative politicians nowadays, they say such things as like there's men and women and that's all there is. And uh, I think things are not so, so simple for us and things are not so simple for our closest relatives. And so you have all that variability going on, what we call nowadays in society, we call it gender diversity. So you find all that gender diversity also in the other primates. Uh, and it's unfortunate that our current societies are intolerant of diversity. So, so we, we like to put people in pigeonholes, like you are male, you are female, you are homosexual, you are heterosexual. We like these pigeonholes, but not everything fits, and, and not everybody fits, and, and we are intolerant of the ones who don't fit in these pigeonholes. Primatologist Franz Duval, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at alanalda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it. Between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. 
Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.